You are listening to Season 1, Episode 5 of Serial Sisters. I'm Jamie. And I'm Tess. The case we're discussing today is one that should have had a much happier ending, but sadly, a few fatal errors cost a young mother her life. This is What She Left Behind. Denise Amber Lee was born August 6, 1986, in the coastal community of Inglewood, Florida. When I heard Denise's story for the first time, it caused me to stop and reflect on whether I would have been as smart as she was and have been able to fight for my life in the way that she did. And you'll see what I'm talking about a little later on, but I think the reason that it caused me to become so introspective is because she and I were born the same year and we would be the exact same age today if she were still alive. So I guess I can relate to like what her life was like and, and, you know, just a lot of the things that she would have gone through at that phase of her life. And Tess, you also have something in common with Denise because she was the oldest of three children, just like you. Yeah, I was going to say that was something that I related to right away, um, being the oldest, uh, coolest sibling and probably the favorite child. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but I it definitely was something that, you know, I felt like I could connect with Denise on. And, but something I really couldn't relate to was how quickly she grew into a responsible young woman. She was married with two kids by the time she was 20. Yeah, you're definitely right. Not about being the favorite child, <laughs> but uh, about the way that she grew up at such a young age. That's something that neither of us can really relate to. Denise and her husband, Nathan, fell in love very young. In fact, she was still in high school. She was a senior at Lemon Bay High School, but she was taking a couple of classes at a local community college where Nathan was enrolled as a student. Coincidentally, Nathan had also gone to Lemon Bay High, but he was a couple years older than Denise and he had already graduated. So they didn't really know each other when they were in high school together, but they met when they were both taking classes at the community college. Denise used to tease Nathan about how he didn't notice her at first, but he said that not only did he notice her, but that he knew exactly where she sat in class, which if you remember like being younger and having crushes, that's like so typical to remember something like that. Um, and but, like their backpack and the <laughs> color, you know, all that, you know, exactly where they sit and what their book bag looks like. <laughs> For sure. And like when you get older and everyone's driving, you like know where they park their car and like, <laughs> Like all yeah. that stuff, or or maybe just we do, but but Nathan did. He said that he knew where Denise sat in class. Um, but for their first date, they went to Applebee's, and I have no idea if Applebee's was one of the finer establishments in the area where they were. But um, Tess, remember how obsessed we were with Applebee's growing up? Like this was not only one of the hottest hangout spots for teenagers in our area, but also we genuinely loved their food and especially those chicken strip baskets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I continued to believe that Applebee's was 
the place to go for anything. <laughs> That's where we went for my college graduation. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. I do and, actually. <laughs> yeah. And then not only that, I went on a date in college and Fred, if you're still listening or if you're listening, I still remember this. He asked me where I wanted to go. He said I could go anywhere I could choose and I chose Applebee's and he thought that was hilarious, but I was dead serious. But what I really thought was cute about this story with Nathan and Denise going to Applebee's um, was that he remembers her sitting there for like 45 minutes and basically just watching him eat. She didn't order anything. And if you have to remember, she was 17 at the time and it just reminded me so much of like high school and going on like a first little date and just being embarrassed to eat anything. <laughs> and I just thought that was adorable. Yeah. It's like, for some reason you don't want people to know that you eat when you're that age. <laughs> um, so definitely or at this age, <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually Nathan was a little bit nervous too. They started dating right before Valentine's day. And considering that it was a brand new relationship, he was kind of nervous about what to get her. So they decided that they would go to dinner and a movie and then just to walk around the mall. So they went into this jewelry store and I know what you're probably thinking, but no, he did not buy her an engagement ring. He did buy her a ring, though. It was a silver heart-shaped ring with a single stud in the middle that she fell in love with when she saw it. And Nathan would later say that even after he proposed, this ring remained more special to her than her engagement ring. The couple got married in 2006, shortly after the birth of their son, Noah, she was just 19 at that time, and Nathan was just 21. A year later, she gave birth to another son, Adam. As you can imagine, providing for two children wasn't easy for this young couple who was just starting out. Nathan actually worked three jobs to provide for his family, and Denise put off going to college so that she could watch her two young sons. They were renting out a three-bedroom home in Northport, Florida, and this was a new construction home, so it was nice, but Denise's father wasn't a fan, so Tess, what was up with that? Well, it was in this, like, rural, isolated area, and it was originally going to be part of new development, but this, like you said, they were married in 2006. This was right around when the housing market crashed, so the property surrounding their home was never developed. Um, and I'll include a photo on our Facebook page, but if you can imagine, it's just like a small dirt road with their home and one other home and then just a row of trees across the street or across this dirt road. Uh, Denise's dad, Rick Goff, was actually a police detective, so maybe it was his career experience that made him feel uneasy about them living in this place, or maybe he was just being a protective dad but either way he just wasn't crazy about the location of this home and it just made him feel uneasy yeah and you know what's funny is that when I hear rural and isolated I start thinking like oh how perfect for a young family um, it's safe and away from all the dangers of the city which is pretty much the exact opposite of the way that Rick saw it but I do get that side too I mean if someone knew where the home was. They'd also know that they were an easy target for criminal activities since they knew they wouldn't have neighbors nearby to witness whatever was going on there. 
Um, but it wasn't quite that remote. They did have one neighbor nearby. And besides, it worked out really well for the boys to have room to run and play outside. So they were happy there. And But that is until one morning in 2008. The morning of January 17th, 2008 began like any other. Nathan left early for work and was on the road reading meters for the power company where he worked before daybreak. Denise and the boys were still asleep when he left, but it was routine for her to call Nathan once she woke up, which she did. She told him how she was planning to give the boys haircuts, and he mentioned that since the heat was mild that day, she might want to cut the air conditioning off and crack some windows to save money. Yes, it's January, but keep in mind they are in Florida, so it still gets warm. In fact, just days before, uh, it had been an especially hot day, and they'd had to run the AC all day, which was why Nathan suggested they take advantage of this mild day to turn the AC off and save some money. Denise tells him not to worry, that she's already done that, and they both hang up and go about their days. Nathan clocks out at work around 3 o'clock, like he always does, and he called her on his way home, but she didn't answer. That's nothing particularly unusual for a mom of two who's got two young children to chase around, right? But he proceeds to call her seven more times on his way home, and still nothing. When he pulls up to the house about half an hour later, he's relieved to see her car in the driveway. He's probably thinking, okay, cool, she, you know, she's here, she's safe, but she's busy, tied up with the boys. But that relief quickly turns into confusion when he enters the home to find his young sons in Adam's crib. Adam is crying, and Denise is nowhere to be found. But her keys, cell phone, and purse are all still in the house. So, of course, he's wondering, what in the world is going on? I'm going to take a quick ad break, and then we'll tell you. Nathan picks up the phone and dials 911. Dispatcher Mandy West takes the call, and she said later that she could tell from the panic in Nathan's voice that something was terribly wrong. She asks him if he sees any signs of forced entry, but he says everything looks completely normal. Well, except for the fact that Denise isn't there. Nathan's next call is to Denise's dad, Rick, who immediately knew something wasn't right because he knew his daughter would never leave the children there alone. Northport Police Department would be assigned to the incident, but Rick's affiliation with the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office caused several other law enforcement agencies to want to be involved and to jump in and assist their brother in uniform right away. So when Northport Police Detective Chris Morales arrives at the Lee residence, several other agencies were already there. They were on scene taping off the roadways in the area surrounding the home to preserve any potential evidence. Because so many agencies were involved, action was taken quickly and the investigation got underway. Now, typically during an investigation like this, they'd look first at the victim's lifestyle to see if it might offer any clues as to who took her. 
but that didn't really happen in this case, right? Right. Because of her dad's position uh, in the law enforcement community and how well the agencies involved knew Denise's family, they were able to bypass some of the lifestyle questions like, was she into drugs? Was she having an affair? Things like that. And also pretty quickly eliminate members of her family and her close circle of friends. And taking those kinds of shortcuts isn't always a good thing. I mean, you know, and anyone who follows these types of cases know that you don't always know people, even when you think you do. But in this case, it worked out for the better, and they were able to quickly get on the right track. And like we've mentioned, the Lees did have one neighbor close by. And when this neighbor was questioned by law enforcement, she tells them that she did remember seeing something out of the ordinary. She said she clearly remembered seeing a green Camaro drive up and down their road several times throughout that day. And at one point, she'd even seen the car pulling into the Lee's driveway. She stepped out at one point to see what was going on and said she made eye contact with the driver of this car and something about him just freaked her out so much that she went back inside the house and she stayed there. The only thing that she could tell law enforcement with some certainty is that she was pretty sure she had seen the car leaving their home around two o'clock. So a bolo or be on the lookout is issued for a dark green Camaro. If the neighbor's timing is right, that means that Nathan would have just missed the car leaving by a little over an hour. And that's one of those things where you wish the timing could have been just a little different to change the entire story. But about four hours after that, a 911 call comes into Sarasota County. The caller on the other end is crying and panicked, and a female voice says, This is Denise. I just want to see my family again. Please, my name is Denise. I'm married to a beautiful husband, and I just want to see my kids again. Then there's a male voice saying, what did you do with my cell phone? The female responds through tears, I don't have your phone. Her dad is able to confirm that it's Denise when he listens to the recording. While it's troubling to listen to, it gives Rick and his wife, Denise's mother, Susan, a glimmer of hope because they at least know she's alive. She does her best to leave breadcrumbs for authorities. The dispatcher asks, do you know this person? And Denise responds as if she's talking to the abductor. I don't even know you. Why can't you take me home? The dispatcher tells Denise she's having a hard time hearing over the radio. And Denise says to the abductor, turn down the radio so you can hear what I have to say. Northport Police Chief Terry Lewis said that Denise did everything right in terms of leaving clues to help them find her and that she went, quote, above and beyond what any trained police officer would do in her situation, end quote. And I watched several interviews, um, one that was her dad, Rick, and he said that she did better than he would have. And I have to be honest, when I learned about this case and all the clues that she left behind, I thought the same thing. Granted, I, I'm not a law enforcement official, but it was amazing to me that she was able to keep her composure enough to think about the ways to communicate with the dispatcher when she didn't have that direct line of communication. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I have no idea how she did it. And I joke with people that just don't even bother listing me as your emergency contact because anyone who knows me well knows I'm not the one to remain calm in times of crisis. 
Um, but somehow she managed to not only get his phone somehow, and we don't know how, and we probably will never know how, but even when she had his phone, she had like her, enough wits about her to, to think things through and make these statements to the dispatcher. And that's just really impressive to me. Unfortunately, her abductor realizes what she's been doing and takes the phone from her and ends the call abruptly before they're able to obtain any additional information from her. Yeah, and this is another one of those things that's just so unfortunate because I believe if they had been able to keep her on the line that she would have been able to lead them to where she was. That evening, the story breaks on the local news and 17-year-old Sabrina Muxlow sees the story and calls police to let them know her dad has just called and told her that his cousin came to his house to borrow a shovel and a gas can and that a girl got out of the car tied up and that his cousin made her get back in the car. Now, I have no idea what the nature of this dad's call was to his daughter. I'm not sure if he was trying to warn her to stay away from this cousin or if this was more of a casual call, like, you're not going to believe what this crazy cousin is up to. Um, we all have family members that are a little bit wild and that you never know what to expect out of them. But I mean, come on. Everything about this reeks of criminal activity and makes me scratch my head wondering why in the world this father hadn't already called the police himself. I mean, why would he have called his daughter and told her this? But anyway, Sabrina tells them that the man's name is Mikey King, and she says that he's a Caucasian male with dark hair and that he's, quote, kind of chubby. They ask her what kind of car he drives, and she says, a green Camaro. For a missing persons case where the presumed crime scene didn't leave many clues, it's amazing that they've already gotten this many leads within just a few hours. But, believe it or not, yet another 911 call comes in. And this time, the caller has come face to face with Michael King. I'm going to ask Tess if she'll tell us a little about the call. A lady by the name Jane Kowalski places a 911 call to Charlotte County around 6.30 p.m. So now we're about four and a half hours after Denise's abduction if we're going based on what her neighbor has told law enforcement. Jane tells the 911 dispatcher she's not exactly sure what she's seeing, but whatever it is, it does not feel right to her. She explained that she was driving down the road and she comes to a red light and is stopped next to a green Camaro. Inside, she spots a man and a younger woman and she can hear screaming. It appears that some type of struggle is taking place inside of this car. The news of Denise's disappearance has not yet made it to neighboring counties. So Jane has no idea that this woman has been reported missing but she's telling them this is not a pleasant scream. This isn't laughter. Someone is in trouble. She's insistent. She tries to follow the green Camaro so that she can report to the dispatchers in real time about where they are, that she eventually loses them in traffic. And this is where a huge mistake was made. The 911 call was originally logged incorrectly and law enforcement was not notified until two days later. 
that any such call had even been made. Not only that, but although Florida Highway Patrol had put out bolos for Kings Camaro to six surrounding counties two hours prior to when the 911 call came in, the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office said that they were not made aware of the bolo until 645. So they wouldn't have known about it at the time of Jane's call, which again came in around 630. Sabrina Muxlow's father, Harold, eventually calls in as well. He tries to remain anonymous by calling from a payphone, but he basically tells the same story that his daughter Sabrina had told them earlier. He says his cousin, Michael King, came to his house to borrow a shovel, a gas can, and a flashlight, and that a girl got out of this car yelling and that she was tied up. He says that Michael told him, eh, don't worry about it. And then he goes on to tell dispatchers, he's not sure if this is an emergency, but he just wanted to make someone aware of it. And Jamie, I'm like you, I don't, how do you not immediately recognize this as like a serious situation going on? There's a girl that's tied up basically asking for help. And you thought, I'll just mention it just in case. Yeah. I mean, I do not get this. It's I know you don't know what you would do in this situation. If it's a family member, it's someone you know, and you don't expect them to be doing something like this. Maybe, I don't know, maybe your mind just doesn't go there, but I don't get how there could be any other explanation for the items that he was picking up and the girl just jumping out of the car being tied up and him saying, I don't worry about it. And then, you know, Harold proceeds to just call his daughter and tell her about it. But At least he called, though, which, if nothing else, it did help reinforce what Sabrina had told them earlier. Around 9.15 p.m., Eddie Pope of the Florida Highway Patrol spots a green Camaro identical to King's heading southbound on Highway 41 in Northport. He does a quick U-turn and tries to catch up with the car. As he's following, he verifies that the tag does, in fact, match Michael King's. Florida Highway Patrol catches up to the car and pulls it over. Michael King is inside the vehicle. His pants are soaked. Above the knee and up to almost the waist, he's covered in water and mud. Denise is not in the car, but they do find a shovel, flashlight, and gas can, just like had been reported. The shovel was still wet. The search helicopter was dispatched to do an aerial search around the area where King was pulled over. However, due to fog, the aerial search had to be called off around 11 p.m. Michael King's Camaro is impounded and King is taken to the station to be questioned by Detective Chris Morales. The detective leans in and says, I need to find out from you what happened. Michael immediately asks for a lawyer. And this is a punch in the gut to Denise's family and everyone who's been out looking for her because he's the only person who knows where she is and he's refusing to talk. An extensive search of the Camaro finds strands of female hair with the roots still attached and rolled up inside of a blanket in the back seat of the vehicle was a silver heart-shaped ring, the one that was so special to Denise. Nathan breaks down when he sees it. He knows without a doubt that it's hers. 
Everyone who knew her said that she intentionally left this evidence behind to let people know that she was in this car without a doubt. I thought about this a lot while I was putting this episode together, actually, and about how strong you have to be to know that you might not make it home alive, but to still have enough fight in you to leave this kind of evidence behind so that at least your loved ones get closure and the perpetrator is brought to justice so that they can't harm anyone else. Yeah, I again just want to reiterate how strong she was through this whole ordeal, and I just really don't know how she did it. And it was such a gift that she had left this evidence behind, if you can call it that after what happened, but it did give her family some closure. The niece is found the next day on January 18th when a bloodhound leads detectives to her body during a search. She was found nude and appears to have died from a gunshot wound to the head. She was just five miles from where Jane, one of the 911 callers, had spotted her in the car with Michael. It's so frustrating because so many things were done right, namely by Denise and the 911 callers, and it feels like her death could have been avoided so easily with the information that they had. If it had all been communicated correctly to authorities and across all the agencies, I really believe things could have ended differently. But ultimately, there's just one man responsible for her death, so I try not to I try not to go down that line of thinking about all the things that could have changed the situation because ultimately there was just one force of evil behind it. So Tess, what happened to him? Michael King is charged with kidnapping, sexual battery, and first degree murder. He is 36 years old at that time. Even after the discovery of the niece, Michael King refused to talk to police or give up any information. It's up to detectives and prosecutors to piece together what they believe transpired that day. They believe that Michael King happened to drive by the home of Denise and spot her outside on her lanai on the back of the house that could be seen if driving up the dirt road. This is where she would often cut the boy's hair. He continued to drive back and forth by the home assessing the situation. When King realized that she was a young woman all alone with only young children, he decided to act. He forced Denise back into the house, and police believe that he may have attended to assault her in the home, but that perhaps Denise, being a protective mother and concerned for her children's safety, asked Michael to let her secure the children into the home and that she would leave with him. Then she placed them in the crib together and allowed herself to be removed from the home in order to protect Adam and Noah. They believe Michael may have then drove Denise to what prosecutors call his, quote, rape room, end quote, at his home. From there, Michael decided that he had to kill her. This is when he went to his cousin's home to borrow supplies in preparation. They believe he drove around until he found a spot he was comfortable with shot Denise there, and then fled after burying her body. King's trial began on August 24, 2009. He was represented by a public defender. They called no witnesses and didn't have much of a defense, honestly. Their strategy was simply to try and create enough reasonable doubt in the minds of jurors by suggesting the possibility of evidence contamination and that a friend or acquaintance of King may have committed the crime. The jury did not buy it. It was a brief trial, in my opinion, especially considering the serious charges he was facing. It lasted only four days. 
On August 28, 2009, the jury found King guilty of kidnapping with intent to commit a felony, sexual battery, and first-degree murder. They deliberated for only two hours. On September 4, 2009, the jury recommended the death penalty in a unanimous 12-0 vote. King showed no emotion, no fear, no remorse, just no reaction at all. His penalty was appealed and went to the Florida Supreme Court. His attorneys argued that he was not given a fair trial due to his childhood brain trauma had not been considered. So he was supposedly, he had a head injury from a sledding incident when he was a child that left a divot in his head. And because of that, he had a low IQ. On February 29, 2012, the Florida Supreme Court upheld the juror's recommendation of the death penalty, and he was called, quote, unusually cold and cruel. Michael King sits on death row at the Union Correction Institute in Florida Department of Corrections. As far as I know, he's not been assigned an execution date. Well, thank God Denise left the evidence that she did behind because I don't know if he would have been convicted without it. Um, The story could have ended a lot differently, and I think that's a good lesson for all of us. I mean, I don't want to sound like a broken record here by going back to all the ways that Denise was prepared for something like this, but I think it is a lesson that all of us can learn from. It isn't something that we like to think about, but what would you do in a situation like that? Would you know what evidence to leave behind for authorities? Would you know how to communicate with the dispatcher on the other end of a 911 call when your abductor is inches away? I realized how unprepared I was after listening to all of the steps she took. So I think there's definitely something that I learned from it, and I think that all of us can. Nathan felt that way, too. In fact, he founded the Denise Amber Lee Foundation in his wife's honor to support and promote public safety by offering training for public safety officials and especially for telecommunicators who are truly the very first responders to an emergency. They're the ones who are answering the calls on the worst days of our lives and in the earliest moments where we're panicked and not always able to communicate clearly and effectively. Nathan recognized the importance of and the need for more training for telecommunicators. You can find more about the Denise Amberley Foundation at deniseamberley.org. If you feel led to, you can make a donation through their website. This website will also be linked in the sources for this episode and on our social media channels, or stay tuned to hear all the sources used read aloud at the end of the episode. As always, we'll have a discussion thread on our Facebook page where you can tell us what you think about this case. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at Serial Sisters and on Instagram at Serial Sisters Podcast. Join us next week where we'll be back with another brand new case. Sources used for this episode include deniseamberlee.org, Naples Daily News, article title, Prosecutor, Denise Amber Lee was tied to headboard in King's car, Wikipedia 
org backslash wiki backslash murder of Denise Amber Lee youtube.com murderpedia.org death row 2019 usa.blogspot.com